0: I'm Marianne Kolbasek mcgee Executive Editor of Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Gary Glover, Senior Director of Security Assessments at consulting firm Security Metrics. Gary will be speaking to us about some of the challenges involved with securing remote access applications. Hi, Gary. Hi, how are you doing? Good. So now, Gary, to start, what sorts of remote access applications are generally used in the healthcare sector?
1: There's a whole lot of different ways to get remote access. Some of the most common ones that we see, you know, used even from even to high-end companies are applications like LogMeIn or PC Anywhere. There's just tons of different things that allow you to to basically get access to potentially an office computer from home or from somewhere on the road. Those are kind of the ones that are used by, you know, to make it a little bit easier, there are also programs called virtual private networks or a VPN connection. Those connections are typically set up by a, a more high-end IT department and, and you know, can require various types of authentication. But the other type, I think, of remote access type thing that may be being done is Perhaps you have a web application that may be running either on-premises or one that you access that has various levels of roles, let's say. So maybe somebody's just a normal user, but somebody else is an administrator, and so remote access of that software, whether it's maybe even in the cloud or hosted at your location, can be used if somebody gets your password and your username, can be used to go in and make changes, can be used to get... Uh, sensitive data out that shouldn't be released to someone, a lower privilege maybe, you know, you're getting the higher privilege manager type access to everybody's data rather than just your own data, things like that.
0: So in the healthcare sector, this sort of remote access could potentially give someone uh, unauthorized access to patient data, for instance, clinical data?
1: Yeah, and that's really the critical thing. So patient data, maybe even all the way to social security numbers, etc. I was at a doctor's office not too long ago for my own use. There was some time for me to wait, so I got on my computer and uh, was doing some work, realized it didn't have a file, so I thought, oh, I wonder if they have wireless. They did, so I got onto their wireless. There was no password and got the file. While I was there, I decided, well, I wonder... I wonder how secure these guys are. So I just looked around just briefly a little bit, saw that they had a server that was exposed, noticed that the password was null. In other words, you didn't have to enter a password. And I was quickly inside all the way to the backside and could see things like files that may contain credit card numbers, etc. I quickly got out, talked to the doctor after my appointment, and uh, asked them, you know, if they need any help or whatever. She said, no, 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 my brother does it. We're okay. I said, okay, well, that's pretty good. You're pretty open. So wireless can be a way that people can get in. And if you just don't even, you know, people may not think that wireless is, that everybody may be poking around, but there's a lot of smart people out there that just kind of are curious as well. But once you're inside, depending on the type of connection, if you are getting a direct network connection, like getting onto somebody's wireless or, if you have a virtual private network and use a really poor password, you're there as if your computer is fully privileged on their network, then you can then potentially attack other systems and see if, you know, if they have bad passwords or whatever or no passwords. And then when you're on the back-end server, you basically have the keys to the kingdom and can do, just like anybody, a root access person on, on a computer or a server in, in the office. So you're a super user.
0: So within the, within the healthcare sector, who would you say is most at risk? Are, is it, you know, these smaller doctor offices that perhaps don't have the resources or the manpower or the know-how to, to secure these systems? Or can they also be, you know, an issue at uh, hospitals if there's a, uh, an office there that has a system running and it's not properly secure? What are your, what's your advice?
1: Well, I don't think it really matters whether you're big or small. It really kind of depends on on how you've configured and set up your systems. There are really large organizations, healthcare organizations, that have poor practices on their perimeter. In other words, on on the edge of their Internet, they are allowing people more access than they should, or they're having poor remote access security. We can talk about that maybe a little bit later, what things you can do to secure remote access. But... It doesn't matter whether you're big or small. The small people, you know, I don't know, are they more prone to it? I can't really say perhaps because they're really trying to do healthcare care and not really worried about securing systems. They just want to make people well and, and, and et cetera. so provide those services. So they may get neighbors or relatives or friends or, or some small IT company nearby to try to help them out since they're not, that's not their expertise. However, even some of the biggest guys with super fancy IT departments, their departments, you know, the guys in their department just may not be thinking security or they may not really realize that, you know, we think it's really secure, but it turns out we only have one level of authentication, all that's required is a password. When when you're getting really deep remote access right into systems, you may want to have a second factor of authentication. Much like when you use a bank or something, they, may, they give you a little key fob or a token or Some sort of a thing, fingerprint, you know, whatever it may be to, to second, to provide a second layer of authentication.
0: So you mentioned multi-factor authentication. Are there any other steps that healthcare entities really need to take to better secure these applications?
1: I think there's a couple of, couple of things you can do. Number one, it really comes down to education in, in many ways of, of employees. It starts there. They need to to set strong passwords. There are some things that IT departments and software may allow you to configure or require stronger passwords. You know lately on the web you've been noticing you've probably got a, you know in the last five years you've had to add stronger and stronger passwords to various accounts you may have on the web. So that's getting more prevalent. You need to have long passwords with uppercase and lowercase and numbers and a symbol and um, fairly random or a, or a weird pattern on the keyboard or the first letter of a song phrase that you really like, first letters of each of each word, something like that that is not searchable or dictionary contained in a dictionary. So setting strong passwords is probably the first line of defense. Uh, the second line of defense would then be training your people not to give out their passwords to people that shouldn't be getting them. And social engineering attacks are very common and very successful in most cases where people are posing as HR or posing as the IT department and saying that there's a problem with your password or something, please let me know what it is and I'll help you reset it. You know, there's all kinds of different ways that people can do that. So just training people to be wary, really confirming who it is you're talking to and whether they have the right to know that information, etc. And then the the highest level then of security for remote access would be requiring that second factor or a multi-factor of authentication above and beyond a password. A username doesn't count as an authentication. A password counts as one layer, and that's something you know in your head. And then the second layer is typically something you have or something that is unique to you as a person, whether that's a fingerprint or some sort of a token in your pocket, some little card that has numbers on it or that that the numbers change on it electronically or if you've got an app running on your phone like the Google Authenticator, changes numbers every 60 seconds and then you have to input those numbers and and your account is synced to know whether that number is correct for that time period. So that second factor is something that, that uniquely identifies you as you and only you should have possession of that thing, that token, that number, maybe your cell phone. Maybe it calls your cell phone and asks you to type in a PIN. I mean, there's hundreds of ways of doing that second factor of authentication. And a certificate's installed on your computer, like a, a Cisco firewall certificate for a VPN or something like that. Once you have a two-factor remote access for your most secure and most secret areas, then you feel pretty confident if you're keeping all of those layers in place, strong passwords, strong second authentication, etc. cetera. For direct network access. Now, if we're talking just about web application access and, and, you know, a manager role versus a, a user role or a patient role, that really, you know, there are things that can be done there and that's something you can ask as far as your software provider or maybe if you develop your own software can do. There may, you may be able to require things like SSL certificates for connecting to that manager role. You may require stronger passwords, etc. but really it does come down to really strong passwords and, and not something that's guessable either by a person or by a computer program. There are things called rainbow tables out there that, that the, the criminals, the hackers use to do a brute force attack on a remote access password where they're able to type in, they run a program essentially that, that has pre-computed every combination of every letter and number and symbol And they just start running through that and hitting the application with these passwords. You know, that it takes them a long time to do that because the password may time out or something, or the uh, application may time out after so many passwords, but then they just time it. They just say, well, we'll just take six months to do this rather than, you know, really fast. So computers have plenty of time, hackers have plenty of time, and it's amazing that most of the compromises that we see that are occurring are bad remote access that could have been easily prevented by strong passwords.
0: Now, with that said, what are the biggest risks that are posed by having insecure remote access to these applications? You mentioned that you basically could provide the, the keys to the kingdom to someone who is intent on in getting in. If someone does get in, well, what is the next layer of security that you recommend to prevent extensive damage or a compromise to data?
1: Well, then you get into kind of like the whole, whenever you see a a physically secure facility, you'll notice different layers of controls as you get closer to the facility. There's a fence a ways out. There's a big empty grass space. There's a tall wall of barbed wire. There's guards. There's dogs. There's bars. There's whatever. I mean, all these different layers of things that go before you can get to the most secure thing at Fort Knox or whatever. Similarly, that same kind of a structure has to be built inside an entity's network perimeter. Your firewall is the first layer of defense, and so making sure that you have a strong firewall and don't expose too many things. However, remote access is often something that you expose. So if somebody gets through that layer and gets inside, now if he's on his own computer, he's just sitting there in your own network on his computer, if he's got a VPN or if he's a log in type of a person now, or he may be, you know, logged into your workstation in the corporate environment. So now what he's got to do is jump around and try to find more stuff. Typically, they don't come into a network necessarily as root big super user. They then get in there and they spend time sniffing around, figuring out what they can do. They they escalate privilege. They'll start then doing the same kind of attacking from your computer, to a main backend server at the hospital or at the healthcare organization or whatever to see if they can, can crack a password there or they'll look to see if there's a vulnerability on, a, on an application that's exposed inside. Maybe a web application has a, was written poorly and there's, a, there's something called SQL injection or they can attack a database through an application just by sending funky commands to it that people are not expecting and then start gleaning data. So they don't even have to leave their computer or even you know, like a workstation inside the network and get that kind of a data from a, from a network or from a database. They can just start telling the database they need something. It will kind of freak out and go, oh, well, okay, I'll give you a bunch of this stuff. And then they just start collecting and that's gonna be like potentially patient names, addresses, records, social security numbers, those kind of things that are typical in a, in a large healthcare breach are, the, are is the sensitive data they're going after, some way that they could potentially use to break into your bank account or file taxes for you or whatever it may be. Uh, they're looking for just that sensitive information. So there needs to be trip wires set up inside the network. It's all kinds of software that, that can be used for intrusion detection you can notice when people are doing weird things, like an internal brute force attack. You would want to be alerted that that's happening. So that's another one of those layers. And so an IT department needs to set that up in a large organization or, you know, in a small organization there are, you know, fairly cheap software packages you can get to put on there. However, the hard part is monitoring. I mean, even if you have all of this software installed, these tripwires that that the bad guys will trigger as they go through looking for things in your network. If those are all set up, yet nobody's looking at those indicators, nobody's looking to see whether anybody's inside, then they can still do whatever they want. It doesn't really matter. So it's it's an awareness thing. But, boy, once you're inside a network and, you, and if you've got time on your side, you can pretty much get anywhere and do anything. Snag data from databases and look for credit card numbers even if the uh, institution is taking credit card data, and there's all kinds of things that you can lose.
0: So now, Gary, there's been a number of large hacker breaches in the healthcare sector that have been revealed over the last several months, and in some of these cases, apparently, the breaches went undetected for quite a while. What are the biggest lessons or the number one lesson that you think healthcare providers should learn from those other examples?
1: Undetection for long periods of time is very common in almost any type of data breach. In the payment card space, we've seen lots of really large breaches in the healthcare space, et cetera. People can get in and sit there and hang out for a long time looking for things, and nobody notices it. And really, what that means is nobody's trying to notice it. Nobody has set up the controls. Everybody is, is not worrying about security. They just figure that the front door is strong enough. Nobody would ever come in our front door. What are you talking about? You know, we hear all the time of robberies going on with people sitting in the house, in the kitchen, because in they're the front door is open. People just walk in and grab a stereo and walk out. Um, it's not that your front door will prevent that. If it's not secure, people will still come in and do that kind of uh, action. So you can't just believe, well, we have a good, strong firewall. Everything's okay. Comcast has got me covered, right? I, I, they have. They put a firewall in front of my network. Often we we depend on we think other people have got it. So often when we get in a breach situation, we see fingers being pointed all different ways. Well, no, it wasn't my fault. It was those guys' fault. It wasn't. It wasn't our job to secure it. When really it is. It really is the corporation's job at almost every level to secure data, whether that's from HR doing training of people and setting policy and procedures all the way down to really thinking about where your data is, how it's exposed, maybe can you encrypt it if you have to, I right? mean, is there a way that you can encrypt the data so that if people get in there and get to it, it's unusable to them, have your program decrypted only when you need it, for example. So the lessons here learned are, and I'm, I'm sorry to say that this is the lesson that pretty much corporate America needs to learn in many cases, and that is, Electronic data is at risk, and unless you know where it is and how people can get access to it and really think about people doing that and paying for security and thinking about security and instituting a culture of security from the very top level down. Often we get into organizations and we find out that that the top level guys say, well, no, I thought we were secure because our IT department is in charge of that. It's really hard to push security from the bottom. The IT guys typically don't have enough budget, don't have time to get the training, etc., because of all of the other things they've got to do. It really has to be an enabled program from the very top levels of any type of an organization to be truly secure. It has to be something the corporation wants, will support, and will push through funding, training, everything. To be able to, to make that thing, that situation really be present in a corporation, it's prevalent everywhere. So that's my advice: is to decide to take security seriously. It's a problem; it will be a problem, and continues to remain a problem for and as long as we're storing data digitally, which is pretty much for the next millennia or so.
0: Thanks, Gary. I've been speaking to security expert Gary Glover. I'm Marian kolbesek Begay of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.